We are back in Ephesians tonight. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. My name's Phil, I'm the Associate Minister here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards, especially if you're new. Let's pray, and then we'll get into Ephesians 1. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for the rich promises. And Father, we need your help if we're to understand and to believe them. And so we pray that you would give us not just uh, sharp minds, but we long for hearts that are moved, that are thrilled, that delight. And we ask this for your glory. Amen. I'm not sure if you're aware, but history ended in 1806. True that. Uh, According to the great German philosopher Hegel, probably one of the most prominent, influential philosophers of the modern age, as he saw the Emperor Napoleon coming away from the Battle of Jena, having crushed the, the Prussians, he declared, this is the end of history. Napoleon. And he was convinced and wrote that very, very soon the nations of the world would unite in peace and harmony under the glorious rule of Napoleon and that that would be the end of human history. Yeah, it didn't work out quite like that, did it? Um, Where is the world going, though? Where will history end up? If you look throughout the centuries, uh, philosophers have debated about the theory of it and generals and politicians have sought to, to shape the reality But where is history going? I'm just going to move because there's no room here. Um, Where is history going? Is it just a sort of endless cycle? Is is what we see now, are we condemned to just more of that? Until, well, the sun burns itself out. Empires rise, empires fall to be replaced by another empire that enjoys its day in the sun before fading into the sands of history. Is history just an endless cycle? Or does it have a destination, a a goal? Now these days, um, most people don't buy into sort of Marx's theory of, or Hegel's theory, when Napoleon's dead, it's a bit, you know, 
pretty odd if you think that Hegel's right, but I think most of us in the West, we have this, this vague evolutionary assumption, you could call it, about history. We have this vague assumption that we've picked up that, that things are kind of getting better as Western liberal values permeate through the world, as enlightenment, educated, tolerant values slowly spread out. Things are, you know, they're basically getting better. There is this evolutionary assumption that humanity is on an upward trajectory. Well, that's taking a bit of a bash at the moment because the, as you look around the world, actually, it, it probably looks more unstable now than it has for a very long time. But what is happening? Where is the world going? Because the truth is, how you live today is very much shaped by what you think is going to happen tomorrow. How you spend your time and your money. How much you're crushed by disappointment. How much you invest yourself and place your hopes in in work, in relationships, in all sorts of things is shaped by what you think is going to come around the corner, what is coming next. And in Ephesians 1.10, Paul tells us to rejoice with him that human history, actually cosmic history, has an end point. And it's not Napoleon, and it's not the triumph of liberal democracy. It is the reign of Jesus Christ, a reign that will bring blessing to all people. As he puts it, the day will come when God will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's God's plan. Now, as we uh, saw last week, if you were with us, um, Paul's writing to churches he planted and taught for a couple of years in a town in Turkey called Ephesus. It was a place of enormous wealth and power, and the Christians might well feel pretty intimidated and small and weak as they look around and see staggering temples of pagan worship, wonders of the world, and enormous wealth and power. And all they have is, well, faith in an unseen God. And so Paul encourages them. Look, you might look pretty pathetic. You might feel very weak when you look out into the world. But in Christ, you have every blessing there is. In Christ, you have divine power. And in Christ, you have eternal riches. And so in Christ, you should rejoice. You're right to feel confident if you trust in Christ. That's Paul's great message. Uh, If you were away last Sunday, you really should listen to the sermon. It was a glorious chance to to explore all God has done for us. And it's built on verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then from verses 4 to 14, it's really one euphoric sentence as Paul just pours out this waterfall of praise to God as he lists all the amazing blessings that even now, even now, you share if you trust in Jesus Christ. And once again, you'll see that the drumbeat, the refrain of this passage is in Christ. Everything that we have is in Christ. In other words, Christ has won these amazing blessings. We have them when we come to Christ. I think 11 times in verses 3 to 14, Paul says, in him or in Christ, we have something. The the first and the last words of verses 7 to 10 in the original language are, in Christ, it starts, and in him, it ends. And what he celebrates in these verses, what we'll see tonight, are three things that he's going to focus on. Three things that we have in Christ. He says, in Christ, we have redemption. It's the first thing. Secondly, we have forgiveness. 
all according to his rich grace. And thirdly, we know his eternal plan to bring all things to order under Christ. We know God's plan of cosmic reconciliation. Okay, so simple points. The riches of his grace, redemption and forgiveness. We'll handle the first two blessings together. Verses seven to eight. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Redemption and forgiveness. Now, redemption is the the freeing of a slave. That's what it is. It's paying money to free a slave. And the Bible, bizarrely for some of us, describes all humans, our natural condition, as slavery. Even if you live in a democracy. Even if you work for yourself and owe no money to anybody. Mortgage free. <laughs> as if. Even, if. even if you're true to yourself and you live your life doing what you want, the Bible says you're a slave. Jesus says in John 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. In other words, he says that we are bound by our desires, not by external shackles, but by internal desires. Our sinful selfishness, our inability not to put me first, to serve me above all else. Our inability to stop doing stuff we know we shouldn't. If you don't believe me, if you think the Bible's overstating it and describing you, me, everybody as a slave, then... Um, very simple way you can discover it. Ask a friend. Don't do this yourself. Ask a friend, a flatmate, family member. What is my very worst habit? Not the silly things, but the serious things. What's my worst character flaw? And then just stop it. I mean, it should be simple because you're free. Only it's not. Don't write down what you're going to tell your flatmates. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is you me we're slaves to sin and that slavery leads to eternal death because slavery to sin cuts us off from God who is the source of all that's good and true and is the only source of eternal life so while I am a slave to sin I am destined to die but the glorious news of Ephesians is that Jesus Christ has redeemed us if we trust in him has liberated us, has paid the price for our, to set us free. And so if you trust in him tonight, you are free. It's good news. And the price he paid is revealed in the next phrase. It's through his blood, that is his death on the cross. In 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act provided for the payment of, in today's money, 17 billion pounds for the release of slaves in the British Empire. That's 40% of our GDP. Before we get too impressed, to the absolute disgust of the mainly Christian abolitionists and to the shame of our country, all that money was paid to the slave owners, not a penny to the slaves. But it cost 17 billion to liberate them, to redeem them, to pay for their freedom, such limited freedom as it was. What did Jesus pay for our freedom? His blood. The blood of Almighty God. You cannot put a value on that. But the point very simply is there was nothing more valuable in the entire cosmos. In other words, there was no price God was not willing to pay to set you free from sin. No price. As well as redemption. We have forgiveness. 
Now, this is about who bears our sin. So when I wrong my wife, if I wrong my wife, if I'm uh, impatient, unkind, thoughtless, if I hurt her, she is always left with a choice. She can make me pay for what I've done. She can turn it back on me by retaliating or by me making, uh, forcing me effectively, by turning away from me until I've made it up for her with thousands of pounds of flowers and jewelry. Um, or, or she can forgive me. But when she chooses to forgive me, it's not like the offense just evaporates. No, the hurt is real. It's just that instead of making me bear it, pay for it, she chooses to bear it herself and not make me bear the consequences. And that is what God did at the cross. He came to be the man Jesus Christ so that in his justice, when he punishes sin, he would not make you bear your sin, but rather he would bear it for you, taking it on himself, suffering for you. The sin has to be punished, but he chose to bear it himself so that we could go free and be truly free. Now, before we move on, it's interesting in this verse, do you notice it says uh, sins, plural? Now, usually, actually, Paul talks about sin singular. Sin is a power, an enslaving, dominating reality, an overwhelming thing that characterizes us. But here, he talks about sins, plural. And I think his point is to, just to get our heads around the, sh- the sheer scale of it. Let me illustrate. Um, imagine this red ball represents one sin. I don't know what it is, a selfish thought. A total failure to love someone you ought to love. Cutting, gossiping words. Proud, impure thoughts. Whatever it is, one sin, this red ball. How many red balls do you think you've accumulated today? What about if we have a week? Bathtub big enough for them? This year? Over the course of your life, how many of these buildings do you think you'll have filled? And when Jesus died on the cross, he took away every single sin. Not just sin general, but every single individual sin was dealt with, forgiven, taken, gone, so that you and I would be free. That is unimaginable, the scale of what Jesus did on the cross. Every single sin of every single person in all of history who would trust him. It is as incalculable as the value of his blood that was offered in redemption. And that is why in Ephesians 1 we're told, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be. And God did it, verse 8. God lavished it upon us because of the riches of his grace. A couple of things here. Firstly, notice we didn't earn it. He didn't say, uh, you've got to earn it. You've fallen short, now you earn it. Nor did he make it affordable as if um, being right with God is a, is a price we can't pay. We can't repay our sins, so God slashes the price, makes it affordable, you know, does a bargain with us. Let me bring it down to something you can repay. No, it's not like that. He gives it. He lavishes on us redemption and forgiveness. And he does it because he's a God whose hallmark is lavish, rich forgiveness. 
Do you see, it's in accordance with the riches of his grace he does it. He's just like that. Uh, We went to Sicily this summer on holiday and we got seriously lucky. Um, We didn't have a single day that was ruined by snow or freezing fog. Not a single day. The sun shone every day. And if that wasn't lucky enough, uh, the place where we were staying... um, the sea was warm. It was incredible. It wasn't like the, the British Sea, you know, fun and bracing, um, which means you can't feel your legs after two minutes. No, this was, it was like, it was nice to just bask around in it, just to float, except for the jellyfish. But it was just lovely, lovely, lovely. And as if we weren't lucky enough with the sunshine and the warm sea, every time we went out for food, and it wasn't pizza every night, although almost, but every time we went out for food, it was incredibly tasty and cheap. Who'd have thought I mean, how lucky were we to go to Sicily and find amazing food and sunshine? That's just what Sicily's like. In August, the sun shines, the sea's warm, and the food is fantastically Italian. That's what you expect. It's just what Sicily's like. And rich forgiveness and free redemption, that's just what God is like. You didn't catch him on a good day when you prayed to him and said, please forgive me for my sins. He's always been like that and he always will be. He's a God of lavish, rich, glorious grace. It's just what he's like. That's why he forgives. That's why Jesus came and died. That's why you and I are redeemed. Rich in grace because that's what he's like. God lavishes the riches of his grace, redemption and forgiveness on us. Those are free gifts available for any And you can guarantee that God will always give those to you if you ask. And secondly, the knowledge of his plan. Cosmic reconciliation. This is the third element of blessing in these verses. It's about revelation or knowledge. It's something God has made known to us. So halfway through verse 8. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Okay, let's just work through it to see why on earth that's such a rich blessing to be told what God's going to do in the future. Now, firstly, mystery in Paul's writing is not something weird and incomprehensible. Ooh, mysterious. If you turn on a couple of pages to Colossians, so Ephesians, then Philippians, then Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 26 Colossians 1.26, Paul, same author, writing, says, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. In other words, uh, a mystery is like the contents of this box. It is something that's kept hidden. It's not weird. It's just you can't work out what's in here unless I open it. And it's my car keys, which I probably need to make sure I don't forget. The, that's, what, that's a mystery in the Bible. Something that's hidden, and then God reveals it. There you go. Only this mystery is not my car keys. This mystery is God's sovereign plan for the universe. His point is, you would never work out that God would do this. That a a holy, perfect, righteous God would bear himself sin and would would somehow restore this mess of a world through dying on a cross and rising again. No one would work out what God is going to do. God has to reveal it to us. And that plan 
is to bring to unity all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Actually, the word for bring unity really means to reunite, to unify something that was once together and has now been shattered apart. There have been some great reconciliations in history. Think, uh, take that and Robbie Williams. Uh, or the Berlin Wall. Or if you still want to go up another scale, I hear the Spice Girls maybe getting back together. I kid you not. Incredible. But this is a whole different scale even to that. Don't check your phones. You look it up afterwards. Through Jesus Christ, God is going to bring back into harmonious order every single atom in this universe. Everything. Why is that such a rich blessing to be told that? Like being forgiven all my sins so that I'm no longer going to hell but going to heaven. That's a blessing I can praise God for. But to be told what God's going to do in the future, why is that so good? Well, when God reveals his mystery to us, it's not in the same way of here's, here's some information you didn't know, now you know it. No, God reveals to us his plan by bringing us into relationship with Jesus Christ. We know it, not in the way that you know the contents of that box, but in the way that when someone brings a tray of delicious food in and you smell it as it goes past and you you can't help but just follow. That's how we know about God's plan. We've had a smell, a taste, and now we cannot wait for the reality. We've met King Jesus and we've already begun enjoying the blessings. I mean, look what happened. We come to him and what do we find? Forgiveness for every sin I've ever committed and redemption, freedom from the slavery to sin. And that's just the hors d'oeuvre. That's just the startup. It's going to be fantastic when he returns. And you see, that's, this is how verses 7 to 8 fit with verses 9 to 10. Redemption and forgiveness are are the first things we enjoy when we come back under the rule of Christ. The church is the beginning of God bringing order to the universe. As people come back from rebelling against God and submit to him, we're coming already under the rule of Jesus. We come here tonight to hear Jesus' words from the Bible and to submit to them and to praise him as our king. And already we're enjoying how good it is to be his people as he forgives us and loves us. See, since, since the fall, which is the Bible's term for when humanity turned against God and rebelled, everything has been ruined. It's not as bad as it could be, but every aspect of the universe is ruined. And one day, Jesus will restore it all. The physical world's not the way it should be. And in Jesus' life, we start to see what's going to happen one day. In Jesus' life, we get the taster for the main meal that's coming. You see it with the physical world. Just this week, dozens of people killed in Japan as they have an earthquake right on the back of the worst typhoon they've had in, what is a 100 years. When Jesus walked the earth, he experienced the disorder of the created order as he was on a boat that was swamped and was going to be drowned with all his friends, and he stood up and said, be still. And the atoms of water and the, the atoms of air, the molecules of, that formed the wind, recognized the creator and just bowed to him and did what he said. Extraordinary. And one day when Jesus returns, there'll be perfect order. No earthquakes no volcanic eruptions, no tsunamis. The created order will work as it should do. The physical world 
The political systems of the world, well, they're not as they should be either. I mean, we suffer under uh, foolish, weak politicians or brutal strongmen who crush people. Nobel Peace Prize winners uh, allow their armies to commit genocide. It just seems that everything goes wrong politically. And what are we to do? Well, when Jesus walked the earth, he saw exactly the same thing. But he arrived as the strongest strongman there's ever been. Here is, here is a man with God's almighty power. He can stop the wind and the waves. And yet he used his power to have compassion, to serve, to love, to die for his people. But he also had the courage and the strength to stand up to oppressors and to turn back the wicked. And one day the servant king will rule all people. And he'll say to the warring nations, be still. And just as he said to the wind and the waves, be still, they will obey him. And there will be perfect order and unity amongst humanity. The physical world, the political world, the human heart. Gosh, I mean, who can understand, let alone control, the human heart? You know, the selfishness and ugliness that lies buried deep beneath the, the smile and the, and the politeness of all of us. Well, when Jesus walked the earth, he met the selfish fraudster Zacchaeus and he forgave him and transformed him into a man who loved to give. He met the big mouth coward Peter and he forgave him and he transformed him into a man of gentle courage. He met the murderous religious extremist Paul who killed anybody who disagreed with him and he forgave him and he transformed him and turned him into a man who was willing to be beaten to death to tell other people about the God of love. And one day, those who trust in Jesus will be perfectly transformed. We'll be free, happy, noble and glorious, just as God always intended you to be. And then there is death the implacable enemy and destiny of all humanity. And when Jesus walked the earth, as we saw two weeks ago, he went to the grave of a much-loved friend, sobbing as he did. And in a hot climate, as the corpse decayed and fourth day in the grave, he knocked on the grave and said, come out. And Lazarus came out. Jesus has power over death. And one day, One day Jesus will swallow up death forever and we will live eternally. Now if that's what the smell of the meal is like, the taster, Jesus' life on earth, imagine how glorious it will be when the banquet is served in full, when the king returns. The riches of his grace, redemption and forgiveness, the knowledge of his plan, cosmic reconciliation, these are glorious blessings. But as we close, what do they actually mean for us when we land? What does it mean for us tonight as we leave? And what does it mean for us tomorrow as we get up? Two things, really. There's lots you could say. Just two things. Joy and hope. Joy and hope. There is great joy for us in the truths of redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his five-volume commentary on Ephesians, wrote of these verses that we will wallow in shallows and miseries if we fail to explore the full riches of God's grace. Striking phrase. Don't wallow in shallows and miseries if you're a Christian. Explore the full riches of his grace. 
Think on, pray about, discuss afterwards the amazing truth of redemption that you have. Jesus has set you free. Sin oppresses you. Sin depresses you, but it doesn't rule you. And one day when Jesus returns, you'll be free entirely. You'll no longer feel that dark tug of temptation, that depression of having given in again. You'll be free entirely from the presence of sin. There'll be no confessions in heaven. When we praise God in heaven, there'll be no prayer of confession. We won't need it. We'll never sin again. One day we'll be free from the presence of sin. But even now, Jesus' redemption means you are free from the power. It no longer enslaves you. It no longer defines you. It's what you do, not who you are now. And you can say no now. Think on, pray about, discuss afterwards the amazing truth of your forgiveness. You no longer have to carry an unbearable burden of guilt around if you trust in Jesus. You no longer have to live with the shame, the stain of what you've done. Jesus has forgiven you. Don't just walk away tonight. Don't just uh, walk away metaphorically by turning straight to conversations about TV and work and holidays and whatever else. Meditate on it. Discuss it. Pray it in with one another. Let it move you and change you. And if you don't yet trust in Jesus Christ, then why not put your trust in him tonight? There's nothing else you have to do. Every Christian blessing is found in him. All we have to do is turn to put our trust in him. Do that and you walk out of here redeemed, forgiven, and destined for eternal glory. There is joy. There is also hope. There is huge hope in the promise of Jesus' cosmic reconciliation. The end of history is not a military conqueror who will suppress all rebellion or a political system. The end of history is the personal rule and the perfect reconciliation of Jesus Christ who redeems and who forgives. Napoleon's path to rule Europe was drenched in the blood of his enemies. But Jesus' road to glory is drenched in his own blood, poured out for the forgiveness of his people. And this should, and this must affect how we live. To know what he's like, and to know that this one will rule and will reign forever. It has to shape the decisions we make. It has to affect our perspective on events, situations, opportunities, relationships. Everything is transformed by the knowledge that one day, the universe will come together under Jesus Christ. As we watch the news of global and national events and feel the fear of pretty uncertain times in Brexit, what is going to happen in March? None of us know. As people can be killed with chemical nerve agents just sitting in a park in rural Britain. Increasing tension between global superpowers. As you work out how to respond to the stuff that's going on and the stuff that's going wrong, As you decide each day, what am I going to live for? It is wonderful to know that history is not an endless cycle. History is not uh, under the control of whoever is strong enough to wrench the wheel out of others' hands. History is under the control of God and it is destined for the rule of Jesus Christ, which will bring perfect reconciliation. There is real hope for you and for our world. For it is in the hands of Jesus Christ 
And he is going to rule. And it is going to be wonderful. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you so, so much that the universe is not chaos. But that one day you will bring all that is disordered, all that causes pain and confusion and misery. And everything will be brought back to perfection under Jesus Christ. Thank you that we know we can trust and rejoice in this king because of how he lived and died and because of what he gives now. Thank you that as we come to him, our king now, we find redemption, that he paid his own blood to set us free. We find forgiveness that every single sin is dealt with. And thank you that these things are, they're just because you're like that. You are a God of lavish, rich, beautiful grace. We thank you and we praise you. And we ask that you would shape our hearts, our lives, our hopes and our fears under this glorious reality. Amen.